Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Let's continue now. Let's continue in our worship. We're going to continue now through the study of God's Word. So grab your Bibles, your devices, and go to 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to try to finish up chapter 3 today. Uh, and so you know we're going to get to a portion of Scripture, verses 18 through 22, uh, that Martin Luther calls the most confusing portion of Scripture he's ever read. Uh, so we're going to have fun with that. Uh, we're going to study that here this morning. Uh, but elementary school kids, are you here? First through fifth graders, are you here in the room today? All right, good. All right, I'm gonna ask Miss Holly, Miss Allison to come up. We have worship bags for you. Inside the worship bags uh, might be a treat, may not be, might be broccoli, might be broccoli uh, in the bags, but there are booklets for you, ways for you to keep your hands in mind uh, in tune as we study the word of God. And so students, uh, first two fifth graders, go ahead and stand up, get your wiggles out and come grab a bag from Miss Holly or Miss Allison. And again, parents, we know they're gonna rustle papers and ask a million questions and uh, sit weirdly in their chair like they do. Uh, But we're okay with it. We want you to be okay with it. We do this a handful of times throughout the year for a number of reasons, but I think primarily is this. Uh, We believe that our children catch more than they are taught and we want them to catch you singing. We want them to catch you worshiping. We want them to catch you studying the word of God together uh, in fellowship with one another today. So that's why they're here. Um, Miss Allison, Miss Ashley, Miss Holly, Miss Natalie, Miss Monica can disciple your kids for an hour, maybe two and a half hours a week or so, but you're the one who has the primary influence in the lives of your children. So I wanna invite you into discipling them along with us, and we're gonna try to empower you in ways to do that. And one of the ways that we empower you is by, on Sundays like this. Again, we understand the distraction. We know that you'll probably be distracted, uh, but uh, we're gonna be okay today. I think what we gain from this experience for our kids uh, goes beyond the things that we can quantify. And so we believe in doing this throughout the year uh, from time to time. So uh, we're gonna continue our series called Exiles. If you want more resources, you can go on our church website, SharonChurch.com. There's a link on the homepage that will give you some more resources and ways to study uh, throughout uh, throughout this series, a number of things on there. When we finish First Peter, uh, we're gonna go into Second Peter because well, it just makes sense. And so we're gonna do that. First Peter, we'll finish up First Peter, then we'll go into Second Peter, and then believe it or not, then we're on Christmas and we're at our Advent series of that. Whoa, Easton? Uh, so we'll be at that point uh, for Advent. So we're coming up quickly uh, to our Christmas series. First Peter chapter three, I'm gonna put some of this in context for us uh, before we, we dig in. Peter is the Apostle Peter, uh, St. Peter, the one who tells all the jokes at the pearly gates, that Peter, uh, the Apostle, disciple of Jesus, the one who denied Jesus three times. He's the one who is always quick to, to speak and quick to act and slow to think. That's who Peter is. Uh, you might have people like that in your family. I'm not saying to nudge them. I'm saying I know uh, that you do. And if you don't think you do, it's because you are that person. That's you. Uh, This is who Peter is, um, a devoted follower of Jesus who, like many of us, just has seasons where he's not as devoted as he would like to be. And that was who he is. Now we pick up this letter. He is probably in his late 50s, early 60s at this point. And so he is 
been, he's seasoned, he's mature, and he's grown a lot since his, these experiences in denying Jesus. And he's a different man than he was then. And praise God that we can be different men in 30 years than we are today. Praise the Lord that we are not defined by the mistakes we made in our 20s, but that we can, the process of sanctification, the gift of the Holy Spirit, become better men and better women. And Peter is evidence of that. He writes this letter uh, to Christians who are in the beginning of persecution in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor. We're gonna learn in chapter five that he writes this from what he calls Babylon, which many scholars would tell us is a code name for Rome. Under oppression, maybe hiding, but he writes this letter to the pastors and churches that would be distributed to them. And so this letter would have been read, would have been read all at once to these churches. They don't, uh, they don't have the same kind of time constraints that, that we have and those types of things. And they didn't have the printing press. So everyone didn't get a copy of this. This was read to them. And so they are hearers of this letter more than they are readers of them. We get to read it together. They're in the beginning of persecution. Peter is reminding them of who they are. They are sons and daughters of the Most High. They are exiles, they don't belong here. They're sojourners, they're aliens. They're just traveling through is what he reminds them of. So when persecution comes, when suffering comes, our default is to fall back into the flesh. And Peter reminds them, you are no longer of the world. You are in it, you are not of it. You are of a different kingdom now. You have a different king, you have a different way of life. And he reminds them over and over again about that. We've just studied a few tough passages uh, where we looked at what it means uh, to be subject to the governing authorities above us, whether that's uh, governmental authorities, whether that's a teacher, maybe it's a coach, uh, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's uh, someone, a boss. That's what we walked through. Then last week, we looked at what it means then in, in marriage, to live in a godly marriage inside of exile, to not be of this world, but we're in it. What does that look like for us? Um, and so I don't know how your home life was this past week, uh, but hopefully, hopefully it was good. Um, if you're like most of us, you had a really good couple of days because you tried hard and then you realized this isn't working as quickly as I thought it would. And so then you're back to your old habits. I wanna encourage you, let's continue walking as exiles uh, in this strange and foreign land that we're in. Peter now is gonna wrap up that whole section on subjecting ourselves to authority. And he's going to do it in, uh, in a way that only Peter can, in a way that is just kind of bold and out there, and it seems disorienting in the way that he does so. So I wanna read through uh, verses eight through 22. I'm just gonna read them. And then Brandon, we'll go back up into verse eight. I'm gonna walk back through them verse by verse. I'm gonna read them so we get the context of it, and then we're gonna dig in. You're gonna see as we get to the end where you're like, I don't, I don't know what's happening right now. You should feel that way. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, finally, Peter says, all of you. So now he's done specific people. Now he's saying, everyone that's hearing this letter, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. You can circle that word. That word means to praise or to pray for. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For, and now he quotes from Psalm chapter 34. If you want to take notes, you can write this. Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him, let him seek peace and pursue it. Verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ Jesus as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That word uh, put to shame doesn't mean that you shame them, but that they are overthrown or they, they are subjected. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And then here we go, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, or eight souls, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see what I'm talking about, 18 through 22? Uh, we're gonna spend some time there, but I think it's important that we read that in context. There's a number of things in there that have pulled out of context, like everything in scripture, can create some really disturbing theology and views of God. So I wanna put all of this in context. So the broad context of the, of the letter of 1 Peter is people in exile, people in suffering, people being persecuted. And just at the beginning of persecution, and, and I think Peter has the sense that worse is coming. And so he writes this letter to them. So that's, that's important for us. He also puts this in the grouping of the idea of being subject to authority or subject to human institution. That's important for us in context. And then he's gonna give us here at the beginning of this passage ways that we should live our lives as exiles. And you're gonna see as we study through this, it's not rocket science. Like the things he tells us to do, if you're a kind person, this should make sense to you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've, I'm sure you've heard similar things before. If you've grown up in the South, your grandmama slapped it out of your mouth uh, if, you, if you understand what's being said here. This is what's happening here in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter three. So 18 through 22, though, I think are gonna give us the why. I think if we really grasp what Peter is saying in verses 18 through 22, we're gonna have a better shot at actually doing what he's called us to do in the beginning of the passage. So we're gonna put all this in context. Let's go back into verse eight. Finally, so at the end of this section on subjecting yourselves or submitting yourselves to human institution, all of you, so none of us get a free pass, all of you, have unity of mind, so be united in the way that you think. Sympathy, sympathy as the idea of suffering alongside of. Have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, which feels like just every characteristic of a follower of Jesus should be. Verse nine, do not repay evil for evil or reviling. Reviling means slander or slander for slander, to speak ill of. So don't repay evil for evil, don't repay slander for slander. And right there, that might be enough sermon for you. That might be enough. In the past 18 months, that might just be enough for you. And you can go home and you can wrestle with that the rest of the week if you want to. 
Don't repay evil for evil or slander for slander. We're, we don't belong here. We don't operate like the world operates. We don't operate in this way. We don't repay evil for evil or slander for slander, but on the contrary, bless. You're gonna see throughout the beginning of this passage, Peter doesn't just tell us what not to do. He's gonna tell us what to do instead. And we don't like that part. We get, hey, no evil for evil or slander for slander. That's great. Instead, he says, you should bless. The people that slander you, the people that speak insults against you, the people who are evil towards you, it's not enough just not to do it in return. On the contrary, we should praise those people. Or at the very least, pray for, invoke blessing for those people. Anybody have people in their life that they have a really hard time praying for? Anybody have people in your life that you have a really hard time hoping that God blesses them? And in fact, when God blesses them, you're mad at God for blessing them. Does that happen? Does anybody else have those people? Good, five of us do. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is who he's speaking to. In the midst of even persecution, he's saying, we don't return evil for evil. We don't slander for slander. We don't meme for meme. We bless. We pray that God would shower blessing on those people. Those of us in the room today with ex-spouses, how's that going for you? Those of us with a former boss, how's that going for you? But the truth is, in the flesh, we actually enjoy the slander, don't we? We enjoy having a reason to go back. Well, I'm not gonna start the slander, but if you start with me, I'm coming right back at you because we feel like that's justified. And Peter's saying, no, 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 because we aren't from this world. And so we bless, we praise them, we pray for. And then Peter says, for to this you were called. What were we called to? We were called to bless instead of slander. We were called to praise instead of repaying evil for evil. For what reason? That you might in fact obtain a blessing. You feel like the Lord hasn't been blessing you? You feel like you're distant from him? Maybe this is where you begin. How are you doing with those who speak evil and perform evil against you and slander you? For, and now he quotes Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, which I think is all of us, I wanna have good days, you wanna have good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil or his fingers, however you best communicate evil. You should keep your tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and now watch and do good. It's not enough to avoid evil, we must do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. We can't say we want peace without actually running after. That word pursue means to run after or to sprint or to chase after peace. Why? Verse 12, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to the, their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This takes us almost back up into verse seven of chapter three where Peter tells the husbands, hey, Treat your wives well. Honor them with all knowledge of them and who they are. Because when you don't, the Lord doesn't hear your prayers. They are hindered. So church, how are we? Do you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? Do you feel like you're trying to communicate to God and hear from God and receive from God and you open his word and there's nothing there to you? I think the first place we have to look is our relationships with people. Because how we relate horizontally will always affect how we relate vertically to the Lord. 
We are a whole person. And you can't hate your enemy and say you love the Lord. So he says, the eyes of the Lord, they're on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Not those who are evil, those who do evil. Then verse 13, now Peter's gonna give us some hope. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous, if you're passionate, if you're radical for doing good? Who's gonna harm you if you're radical about doing good? And then many of us would say, oh, I could give you a list of people who want to harm me if I do good. Well, he's speaking of more of a general term, knowing there are exceptions to the rule, but generally, who's there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? But then verse 14, just to answer our pushback, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, and don't read that as rightness sake, righteousness sake. Some of us suffer and we say, yeah, but it's not fair that I'm suffering because I was right. The Bible doesn't care if you were right. The Bible cares if you were righteous. We fight to be right, and in the meantime, we suffer because we're just jerks about it. Who is, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, Peter says, you will be blessed. And if you've seen throughout this passage, the Lord wants to bless you. He wants to give you good things. He, he wants to be near to you and to me. You will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Have no fear of those who harm you for righteousness' sake, nor be troubled. This word troubled means agitated or stirred up. Over the past 18 months to two years, I feel like we've all been a little stirred up, haven't we? A little bit on edge, a little bit quick-tempered, a little bit quick to accuse or to defend and not so quick to bless. A little, a little quick to speak and not so quick to listen. Pretty quick to uh, share our opinions rather than taking time to let things cool down. So don't be afraid of them and don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be agitated. And again, these aren't, these aren't things that are kind of okay for a Christian. These are things that are never okay for the Christian to have an agitated, troubled heart. We should never live our lives on edge. But, so now instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So if we're gonna reverse engineer that phrase, what he's saying is if you are troubled, it's because you don't revere the Lord as holy, as set apart, as altogether different. If you fear man, if your heart has been agitated and stirred up, it's probably because, according to this verse, we haven't honored the Lord as set apart and holy, as better than. Then, he continues, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We spend so much time on that word defense. We spend a lot of time uh, in the church historically studying apologetics. We study what other religions believe. How do you defend your faith? And we like the case for Christ and Lee Strobel. And those, all those things are great. I think those are wonderful things. But I think where we need to spend most of our time is Anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope. 
You know what the problem is with our apologetics? No one's asking us why we have hope. So we have no reason to answer anyone. The question from this passage is not, hey, do you know your apologetics? Do you know how to defend your faith? The question I have is, are people asking you why you're different? Do people look at you, they look at the church, they look at Christians in today's culture and be like, man, they just seem like such hopeful people. I mean, their Facebook feeds, their Instagram feeds, it just, it really seems like they have hope in this season. I would imagine most of the world looks at the church and says, it sure looks like they're really sad and angry. And so no one's asking us why we have hope. What they're asking is, why are you so cruel? Why do you support that person? Why do, you, why do you have this on your agenda? Man, I would love if the world asked me why I have a hope in me. If I'm being honest, I haven't gotten that question very often. And it's because I'm not an exile. I have the same depressing, frustrating thoughts that they have. If you know something well, so let's say you're a mechanic and you know cars well and you know a certain brand of car or some certain thing is gonna last longer for you or you know how to maintain a certain type of car and somebody comes to you and they say, hey, why do you, why do you buy that brand of car? It would be easy for you to say, oh, it's because of this, because this lasts long, the transmission won't go out. Um, all I have to do is change the oil and change and rotate the tires and I'll have this car running for 250,000 miles because you know about the car. If you don't know about the car and someone comes to you and says, hey, why do you buy that particular brand of car over and over again? You would just be like, I, I don't know. What's wrong with you? You got a problem with me? You don't like my brand of car? I don't like your brand of car. The reason why we can have hope and have a reason to answer the question of hope is because we actually have hope. Because we actually know Jesus. You don't have to spend your lives studying apologetics if you actually know Jesus. And someone comes to you and says, well, why do you believe what you believe? You say, I don't, because he died on the cross for me and my life has never been the same ever since then. What do you believe about the dinosaurs? I don't know, I saw Jurassic Park and I thought that was cool. I don't know, I'm not convinced that we have to have an answer for every apologetic question as much as we have to have an answer for hoping in Jesus. Do you have an answer for that? Because if you knew Jesus, you wouldn't have to study about it you would have an answer for the hope that is within you and you would do it with gentleness and respect. Verse 16, having a good conscience. This word conscience will come back up in a little bit. So I wanna just give a brief definition of what this conscience means. We've twisted it a bit to think through like, well, it's what your mind thinks about moral decisions. Conscience comes from the idea of your mind and your body united as one. Common science, common thinking is the idea. A good conscience is when what you think and what you do are the same. So he says here, Peter says, you have a good conscience. You have good unity of mind and body so that when you are slandered, those who revile or slander your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What he's saying is, so when people come at you about your good behavior, they're actually put to shame because they realize you're actually not a hypocrite. You actually act how you believe. When they try to slander your actions, what they learn is, oh, that's actually who they are. And that's what puts them to shame. That's what uh, overthrows their opinion. Verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good 
if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So now, verse 18. Now, here's what Peter's gonna do. He's gonna move us now from here's how you act to here's why. Here's why. Verse 18. Because Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, let's do some work here. You might wanna write in your Bible a bit. Flesh and spirit are mentioned here. What he's saying is Jesus suffered once in the flesh. And we'll get to that from Hebrews chapter 10. This is Peter's version of Hebrews 10. He says, he suffered once in the spirit, once in the flesh or in the body, and was made alive in the spirit. This word spirit in the Greek is the word pneuma, which is only used in the New Testament to speak of the Holy Spirit. So here's what he's saying. Jesus suffered. He was killed in his flesh. And the body was killed, was murdered, crucified. And through the Holy Spirit, he, had, uh, he rose, is what he's saying. He was made alive in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. His spirit was made alive. Body is still dead. Spirit is now alive. There's gonna be three or four different theological stances on this passage. And I think, I think this is what he's saying. This, I'm telling you that in complete honesty. I think this is what Peter is saying. I'm not gonna go bet my house on it. I might bet one of my children on it, but I'm not gonna bet my house on this. Like, I feel confident about it, but I want you to know that. So if you can study deeper into this. You can look more into it. Here's what I believe in context. And my job as a teaching pastor is to teach what I believe the Lord is teaching me in it. So here's what I think he's teaching me. I think this is chronological, so pay attention. He was, Jesus was put to death in the flesh. And while his fleshly body was dead, he was made alive in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, in which, which being the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So here's where it gets really weird. This phrase spirits in prison, particularly the word spirits, Peter will reference again in 2 Peter. I believe this is a reference back to Genesis chapter six because of the context of Noah's flood, which you get, Noah's ark, which we get to here in a bit. Back in Genesis chapter six, there were fallen angels who sinned against the Lord and the Lord punished them. There are some extra biblical sources uh, kind of along the same lines who said that, that it's God who put them in a prison. He put them in a holding cell in Hades. Now, if you think that's crazy to believe, I wanna remind you, you think a virgin gave birth to the Son of God. If you think that's crazy to believe, I wanna remind you, you believe a man rose from the dead. So in context, here's what I believe Peter is saying. Jesus was crucified, and in the three days that he was dead in the tomb, the spirit of Jesus descended into this holding cell of Hades based on context and what's happening here, and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Some of your translations say there that he preached them. There's a difference in the Greek between words that mean to declare and proclaim and the word for preach, which means to evangelize. This word does not mean evangelize. This word means to declare or proclaim. Here's what I believe Peter is saying. 
What I believe Peter is saying is that in the time between Jesus' death and his fleshly bodily resurrection, he went to this holding cell in Hades and he told those spirits in prison, I won, suckers. That's what I think he does. I think he goes to them and says, you thought you won because of the flood. I I think you thought you were winning, but I got news for you. I'm risen from the grave and you're done. I've won. I believe he goes to the holding cell as a victory lap to declare to the enemy, you've got nothing on me. And in the darkest day in the history of the world of the Old Testament, in the flood when only eight people made it out alive because the spirit of God was so grieved because of the evil on the earth that he wanted to start over. And the enemy thought he had won. I believe now it's Jesus going down and saying, no, 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 no. I've got news for you. That thing with Noah, that was just a shadow of what would come. And it's over. It is finished. I have won. So he proclaims, he declares to the spirits, the fallen angels in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That's why I go back to Genesis chapter six. While the ark was being prepared, scholars tell us it took 100 to 120 years for Noah to build the ark. How long is God's patience? That's a lot of patience. And yet there were fallen angels making a mess of the planet. And then he says, in which a few, that is eight persons, eight souls, were brought safely through the water. So here's what I think Peter is telling his people, telling the readers or hearers of this letter, Christ is victorious. And he's so victorious that he declared to the evil spirits in prison, in bondage forever, that he is victorious. And I know it may not seem like he's victorious and and this persecution is gonna last a lot longer, Peter is foreshadowing, but you need to know, even if eight of you get out alive, he is victorious. He's victorious. Even if the earth is destroyed and all should pass away, he is victorious. Then verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, if there was a period there and Peter stopped talking, we'd have a whole different theology as Baptists. Baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to what? Well, it corresponds to Noah's Ark. Now saves you, then he continues, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal or a pledge to God for a good conscience, for a united mind and body, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's what I believe Peter is saying to the church, to the churches he's writing to. Jesus declared to the spirits in prison that he was victorious. And when you were baptized, you did the same thing. When you were baptized, that was the seal of your deliverance. That was the seal of Christ's victory. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, And it's not the water that saves, not through the water that you are saved, it's through the ark that you are saved, like the eight souls. And the ark is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's through that that you have been saved. 
because through your baptism, you make a pledge for a united mind and body. You make a pledge for righteousness sake. So one author I read this past week said, baptism is an act of spiritual warfare. When we are baptized, we are declaring to the enemy, it's over. I'm the Lord's now, sealed in the ark to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then verse 22, here's why I believe what he's saying is what he's saying in verse 22, because this Jesus has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So in context, here's what I believe Peter is saying. You wanna know why you can live your life without slander for slander and evil for evil? You wanna know why you can live your life blessing instead of cursing? You wanna know why you can live your life? Because you've won because he won. And you're on the winning team. So you don't have to curse. You don't have to revile. You don't have to slander. You don't have to accuse. You can let them do that and you just rest in the victory of Jesus Christ. You don't have to fight back. You've won. Winners don't fight back. Losers do. This is, I believe this is the context of it. He has won. He is victorious. Why argue? Why revile and slander and accuse and attack? You have nothing to be defensive about. You've already won. You've already won. So when they accuse you of uh, hypocrisy or they accuse you of, of hating a particular sexuality or they accuse you of being conservative, all you have to say is, to God be the glory. We don't revile those who revile. We don't slander those who slander. Again, our weapons are not of flesh and blood. We don't wage war according to the flesh. The weapons are our warfare, have divine power to destroy strongholds. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this in verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, which Peter says suffered once for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The idea is that a high priest would offer sacrifices and would never sit down because he still had more sacrifices to perform. So when the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus sat down, what he's saying is, I've got no more left to do. I've won. But why is he sitting down? Look at verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 10. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. How victorious is Jesus? The enemies become an ottoman. That's how victorious Jesus is which sounds a lot like uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, having the authorities, angels, and powers subjected to him, doesn't it? So what do we do? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you remember from 1 Peter chapter two, there are angels looking down on us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin, every evil desire of the flesh which clings so closely, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, the founder and finisher, the victor of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and then the writer of Hebrews says, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And by the way, his feet will be propped up on his enemies. 
You wanna know why we don't slander for slander and evil for evil? Because Romans 8, chapter, or Romans chapter 8, 31 through 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, it's the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who the writer of Hebrews tells us is seated with his feet on the enemy. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Conquerors conquer and they gloat. More than conquerors conquer and they put their feet up on their enemies. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are victorious because he was victorious. So we don't slander for slander. We don't attack for attack. We don't speak evil for evil spoken over us. We rest in the finished victory of Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is hope worth asking about. Well, how do you not revile? How do you not slander? When they said that, why did you not go back at them? Well, I got this hope in Jesus that I'm, I'm victorious because he's victorious. And we can tell the enemy where to go. There's no business among the people of God. But like in the days of Noah, the enemy... It's still attacking. And there are moments when it feels like he's victorious, doesn't it? It feels like he's won your marriage. It feels like he's won your kids. It feels like he's won your faith. It feels like he's, he's won your soul. He's won because of the addiction you're stuck in. He's won because of, of the anger and frustration that you constantly feel. It feels like he's won the day. But the scriptures are clear. He has not won the day. Christ has won the day. And while he might taunt he might accuse and attack. We have a different standard that we're living by. In 2012, the Baltimore Ravens were playing against the then Oakland Raiders, I believe, Los Angeles Raiders at the time. In week 10 of the NFL season, the Ravens were up like 41 to 19, something like that. And there's a play in the end zone. Wide receiver Anquan Bolden, who's from Florida State, Kevin Sprayberry, you needed that today. Uh, from Florida State, Anquan Bolden goes out for a pass. He trips and falls. The pass falls incomplete. And the cornerback defending him acts like he's just won the Super Bowl. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you this video of what happens. There he is out for a pass. He trips and falls. And watch, watch the cornerback. Yeah. Now, we can watch it again and you'll see something. The cornerback did nothing. He did nothing to keep it from happening. And then Anquan Bolden calmly gets in his face and you know he did, what he points at? You can show the next picture, uh, Brandon. He just points at the scoreboard. I love that. Because <laughs> what he's saying to the cornerback is, great, um, it's 41 to 19. Keep on taunting. And here's the thing for us, church. When the enemy attacks and when he reviles and accuses, you tell him to look at the scoreboard. 
we've won the day. He's got nothing on us. And when you stumble and fall, and he takes uh, stake of that victory, you remind him the score, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the God and the enemies are his footstool. We have won the day. We don't slander for slander. We don't revile for revile. We bless. Dallas Willard has this amazing quote in a book that he's written and he says this, we don't believe something merely by saying we believe it or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. So if it is true that Christ is seated at the right hand of God and the enemies have become his footstool, I think we best live like it. I think we best live like our Savior has won the day. And we are his. And if even just eight make it through, he's won the day. We are a victorious people because we serve a victorious God. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. I just want to ask a few questions of you today. I think first we need to wrestle with whether or not people have a reason to ask you for the hope that's in you. Or have you become just like the world, slander for slander and evil for evil? Fear for fear, troubled heart for troubled heart. But if there's hope in you, it would beg a question. I don't know how many of us in the room today don't have hope in our hearts and souls. There's no rest and peace because we don't know Jesus. We don't know the victor. We aren't following him. Well, to pledge your allegiance to Jesus as the victor, you have to first admit that you need a savior and that you believe that Jesus is that savior. He's the perfect sinless sacrifice that absolves you from the penalty of your sin, that you might be set free to walk in the victory. And maybe today you need to do that. You need to give your life to Jesus as an act of surrender that you might find victory. But I think there's more of us in the room today who aren't living from that posture. Some of us, it's because of the darkness in our souls that we don't feel victorious. We feel like we've been tripped up in the end zone. We feel like uh, the enemy has won the, the day. We feel like uh, we're in the flood and we don't know how to get to the ark. Well, I need to remind you that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Nothing. No peril, no persecution, no sin, no addiction can separate you from the power and the presence and love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You are victorious. Live like it. That for some of us, it's been revealed that we are actually living in defeat by the way that we treat people. May it not be so among us. May we bless those who persecute us. May we bless those who revile against us. May we bless those who speak evil against us. May the world be changed through the finished victorious work of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word, for the power of your word. I thank you that even in the moments when it just feels confusing and that we don't know what you're saying, God, that the overwhelming truth of scripture is that you love us and you are for us and therefore who can stand against us. And may that not stir up in us arrogance, but stir up in us humility. 
May it not stir up in us a desire to fight and to rail against and to fight back. May it uh, create in us a desire to rest in the finished work of your son. To know there's nothing left for us to defend. Nothing left for us to earn or achieve, God, but that we can rest in your finished work. And may that bring peace to our souls, peace to our church, peace to our community. May the presence of our church in this community bring peace. And may, may people desire to ask us about the hope we have in us because we've put it so much on display. Father, we love you. Thank you for the victory that is ours through the finished work of Jesus. May we live like it. If we say we believe it, God, help us to live like it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.